I said a couple of weeks ago that this narrative in Joshua 7 that Pastor Dodds just read the first part of, hearing it, understanding it, applying it could be one of the most vital spiritual experiences we will have collectively as a congregation. There are powerful lessons in this chapter. The need for watchfulness in the Christian life, especially, especially after spiritual victories. The necessity to rely on the arm of God and not the wisdom of man, and so many more. I hope you have your Bible open to Joshua 7 because we'll be looking in some detail at the first five verses. And for those of you who think we've slowed down quite a bit, we have because Joshua 7 is so vital. But I'll assure you in several weeks we're going to do something that's astounding. We're going to try to spend either to expound six or seven chapters in one night. A feat never before attempted. I don't so we will, we will speed back up when we come to Joshua 13 through 19. But let me remind you of the context. If you're looking at Joshua 7, the people of God were in Egyptian bondage. After generations, they were delivered by a mighty hand. They meet with Jehovah to enter into a covenant with him at the base of Mount Sinai, where the Lord gives them his gracious law, teaches them of holiness. They come to the entrance of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea and they start to enter the promised land. They're right up on the border and they turn away in unbelief. They're consigned to wander in the wilderness for almost 40 years. And after wandering, that whole generation of apostates, hundreds of thousands, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb, die in the wilderness. After that, Israel crosses miraculously into Canaan. There they are. All the men are circumcised, marked out with a covenant sign, and God gives them a great victory at Jericho in their first battle. Now notice what I said. In their first battle, God gives them a great victory. Now the next conquest awaits them, and that is the tiny Canaanite town of Ai, a town of about 12,000 people, we're told, in chapter 8. One of the most dangerous times in the life of the church, in the life of the believer, is immediately after God's direct blessing. For it's then that we feel smug and secure. It's then that we're open to a multitude of temptations. The people of God, when we open up Joshua 7, the people of God have just won a mighty victory at Jericho. They've completely destroyed and annihilated their enemy. So now they come to the next town as they seek to conquer all of Canaan. Here they are, an army of a million strong, and they fall into the trap that so many believers do. Perhaps tonight you'll see the analogy in your own life. You've been battling some stubborn sin, seeking to mortify it, and you win a great victory in terms of mortifying the flesh. Then you find the next day, perhaps even the next morning, that you're faced with the smallest of temptations, and you succumb. Why is that? We're going to place this under the microscope and analyze our propensity to be smug and secure and to not triumph in temptation after victory. We'll see the lessons to which God's people succumbed and had to learn a painful lesson. And so look with me at five basic lessons, why they fell into the the temptation they did. First of all, they gave in to the temptation to presumption. Look at the statement by the spies in verse 3. These are the spies that Joshua had sent. They come back and they say, 
Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people, for the people of Ai are few. What the people of God are doing here is underestimating their enemies and overestimating their strength. They're few. Our enemies are what the spies say. The census of Ai, later we're going to find out in Joshua 8.25, the census of the whole town of Ai is about 12,000. And so their army in a city of 12,000, even if one out of every three people are in the military, their army could have been no more than 4,000 men. Israel has a military of a million. So the spies, do you see what they're doing? They're arguing from the greater to the lesser. They're saying, Jericho was so much bigger And look what we did to them. We wiped them out in 30 minutes. So Joshua, just send a few soldiers. This fact, Ai's size, leads them to draw a false conclusion. They're basing their presumption on the word of God without a full-fledged reading. Now I want you to look at what perhaps they could have been drawing from the word of God. Look back at Leviticus 26. And I want you to see, remember their canon of scripture at this point. Is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, maybe Job. Notice what they could have been drawing on. While they were still wandering in the wilderness, God made great promises to them about victories when they come into the land. So pick up the text at Leviticus 26, verse 7, where Jehovah says to the people of God, You will chase your enemies, and they'll fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. So the spies who come back to Joshua, they were thinking, well, of course, we'll steamroll these people in Ai. We have the word of God. But they're not reading the whole context, if that's what they were basing it on. Look at Leviticus 26.3, same text, where the Lord gives a condition. If you walk in my statutes, keep my commandments and perform them. You see, these people are presuming on God's favor, not knowing that at that moment, there's radical disobedience in the camp. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see what happens to a people of God, a nation, a congregation, when sin is left unchecked in the camp. That's what was happening to them. They didn't even know it. They'd forgotten the condition of Genesis 20, or Leviticus 26.3. So the first temptation they succumb to is the temptation to presumption. Second temptation they, they succumb to. Second temptation is the temptation to not seek and heed right counsel. There is no hint from the text that Pastor Dodds just read that Joshua consulted the Lord about this attack on Ai at all. Now, what was he supposed to do? What was Joshua as not only the religious leader, but the military and the civil leader of Israel? What was he supposed to do? According to his charge and his ordination, he was supposed to consult the Lord via the priest before he ever made a move. Look at Numbers 27, once again, taught by Scripture. This was in their canon of Scripture. Numbers 27 gives us a good model a good working model of Joshua's marching orders. Numbers 27, verse 18, and following, Numbers 27, 18, the Lord said to Moses, 
Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give him some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him. Did you notice this? Joshua has been given a priest to inquire, to go to the Lord by the judgment of the Urim, the Urim and the Thummim. So at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So this was Joshua's norm. It was to be his practice before he made a move, before he retreated or advanced. It was to seek the counsel of the chief priest, Eleazar. I said it a moment ago. We have no hint from Joshua 7 that Joshua consulted the Lord about this attack on Ai. Instead of seeking God's command, he listens to men who weren't priests or elders. They were just spies. They weren't asked to make decisions, but they were only asked to bring back a report. But Joshua wrongly heeds them. If Joshua would have gone to the priest, to Eleazar, as were his orders at his ordination, God would have given him a faithful answer, and 36 men would have been spared death. We see this later with David. Sometimes when he inquires of the Lord, the Lord tells him, yes, go ahead and proceed. Sometimes the Lord tells him, go, but not yet. And what we see is Joshua fall prey to the temptation to do something you and I grapple with every day. He falls prey to the temptation to lean on his own understanding instead of the word and command of God. You know this principle well. Perhaps it's the first or at least the second or third text of Scripture you memorized with your children. You've memorized it together. When the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't trust in your numbers. Don't trust in your overwhelming strength or track record. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Perhaps Joshua is thinking, I don't even know, need to go ask the Lord about this. This is a no-brainer. It's a slam dunk. We have such a huge army. This is a little bitty town. I don't need to waste the priest, Eleazar's time. He's a busy guy. We can just go up against Ai. He trusted himself in his power. He doesn't lean on God's wisdom. He falls prey to the temptation to not seek and heed wise counsel. The third temptation. The people fall prey to the temptation to laziness and slothfulness. Look at verse 3 of our text in Joshua 7. And here the meaning in the spies report. They come back and say, don't let all the people go up, but let about 2,000 or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people. Now look at those words. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Why? Do these soldiers have something else to do? Are they moonlighting? Do they have part-time jobs? Do they have anything better to do than to go and fight? They're soldiers. It should be their greatest delight and highest privilege to go and fight and fulfill their vocation and see the mighty works of God. But when the spies come back, they say, oh, it would be bothersome. We have to get on all our armor and our swords and march up there. Don't make everybody do it, just two or 3,000. But this is their calling. 
Isn't it interesting, this is the same word when they say in verse 3, do not weary all the people. It's the same word that Malachi the prophet uses in Malachi 1 when Malachi speaks of the people of Israel's attitude in his day towards worship when they say, oh, it's so tiresome and weary. How can we ever grow weary in our divine callings and duties? These men under Joshua, this is their calling, is to fight. And so how can it be said of them, oh, it would be a wearisome thing. It's just as wicked when Malachi, hundreds of years later, will report. The people say, oh, it's, it's weary to go and worship the Lord. And so these people fall prey to another temptation, to laziness and slothfulness in their calling and duty. A fourth temptation. They fall prey to the temptation to disunity. The scheme that the spies propose of dividing Israel's army. Send these people, keep these people at home. That's a division of forces. The scheme of dividing Israel's army is a new method, and it's certainly not one given by God. If you just look in the book of Joshua, and you go from beginning to end, and you go back to Joshua 1, verse 12, you remember two and a half of the tribes out of the 12 tribes of Israel don't want to go in and go into battle with the rest of the army. Now, what does Joshua say to these two and a half tribes who want to split off from the people of God? Listen carefully. And he's setting up the model of don't do anything that could ever hazard the unity of the people of God. Joshua says, remember the word of Moses, which the Lord, which the Lord commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is giving you rest and giving you this lamb. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But now speaking to the two and a half tribes, you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and you shall help them. And what Joshua was setting up was the pattern of don't divide the people of God. It wasn't normal. It wasn't God's pattern to divide the fighting men. And we see this principle all through the book of Joshua except here. The people of God are to move as one army, not to send out a small troop and lead others at home. And then we saw it in Joshua chapter 6, where the Lord Jesus Christ appears to Joshua as the greater Joshua and gives him specific marching orders. And in those orders, he tells him to lead not some of the men, but all of the men. In Joshua 6, 2, just look back across the page, Jesus says to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all, all your men of war. You shall go all around the city once. The clear mandate from Christ, the greater Joshua, to Joshua, son of Nun, is all of the people must fight together. Nobody's exempted. And then notice how Joshua learns his lesson. Don't think this isn't a major lesson. Because Joshua learns this lesson after they find the sin in the camp and discipline it. When they go up against Ai again, Joshua doesn't do this again. He doesn't say, Send the same guys back, the same two or 3,000 guys back, or, or just send half of the troops. Look across the page on the other side of Joshua 8, verse 1, and notice what Joshua does. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Take all of the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. And so the Lord is correcting Joshua's worldly thinking. His divided thinking and saying, no, not just part of the troop, all of the men. But this lesson goes on and on through the book of Joshua. And you'll see how grievous this is to divide the people of God, especially when it comes to warfare. 
about 20 years ago, I had the great honor, the, the session sent me to Cajamarca, Peru, and was there with our dear friend Alonzo Ramirez. And I taught in the seminary there, and on Sunday, Alonzo asked me to preach in the morning and the evening. And the church in Cajamarca that we had been building that week, we had laid some block, and so in, where there were to be windows, there were just cutouts, there was no roof, there was a concrete floor, and when I walked into the little building this morning, there were probably more people than there are in this room right now in a space about one-fifth the size. And the people were sitting on each other's laps. Men had children and then other men sitting on their laps. People were sitting in the windows. People were leaning in the windows. And so I said to Alonzo, I said, you know, Alonzo, as if I'm the church growth consultant, I said, you know, Alonzo, you could fix this. He said, brother, how would you fix this? That's Alonzo's accent. And so I said, well, you know, you could have two or three services, and that way everybody would be comfortable. He said, you Americans. You're always so quick and ready to divide the people of God. I thought, yeah, you're right and I'm wrong. You're, you're completely right. He said, we value the unity of the people of God. And that's a great reason why we have one morning service and one evening service. So I want you to notice what the Lord is doing in Joshua 8 verse 1. The Lord is correcting Joshua's worldly thinking, his divided thinking, and saying, no, not just part of the troop, but all the men. And so this keeps on happening in the book of Joshua. In Joshua 11, verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them speaking of their opponents, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses, burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua, here it comes again, and all the people of war with him came against them. You see, when they divided the army and sent just a few thousand people up to Ai, they did this without biblical warrant or precedent or command. This indicated they went into battle against Ai presumptuously and not in the wisdom and power of God. They fell prey to the temptation to divide and split the unity of the people of God. A fifth temptation. Perhaps this is the greatest and most overarching. They fall prey to the temptation to be man-centered instead of God-centered. Look at what they come back and say to Joshua in their report. Look very carefully at their statement. And I want you to notice what's not there. Look at Joshua 7, verse 3. There's no weighing of the factor of God's presence or power. It's simply a manpower survey with earthly eyes. Look at verse 3. They say, do not let all the people go up. But let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. There is nothing said like this. Well, Joshua, if the Lord wills, we will triumph. Now, maybe you just said to yourself, isn't that kind of a Christian cliche? Let me show you how dominant this phrase, how frequent this, this way of thinking is to be in our speech. What you'll see, by the way, is these men are what the late Francis Schaeffer used to call practical atheists. When they come to give their report, they don't factor in God's providence. They don't factor in God's plan at all. They simply say, we're seeing it with the eyes of the flesh, not factoring in what God might be up to. Perhaps you make big plans, grand schemes, but you never think, what has God in his providence prepared? 
I want you to look back at James chapter 4, the passage, our New Testament reading that Pastor Dodds read a moment ago. And in James 4, James rebukes those who would be practical atheists who don't compass each plan about with this, if the Lord wills. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, when you don't know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Notice that James doesn't teach us to attribute future events to blind fate or chance or luck, no. He insists that our lives are ruled moment by moment by the sovereign decree of God. He's teaching his readers and us that nothing happens apart from God's decree. God is sovereign, after all, over all things. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. All things are from him, through him, and to him. He controls even the hearts of men, we're told in Proverbs 21. Even the hearts of kings and rulers. He ordains the hairs of our head and numbers our days. James is teaching us that it's not enough to recognize that our lives are brief and transitory. Such a recognition is not even definitively Christian. Muslims even see this. James is demanding that we recognize our lives moment by moment are in the sovereign hands of God. And so you're saying, well, Carl, are you saying I need to retool my speech? Yes. One of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Manton, wrote, Must we of necessity always use this form of speech that James teaches? And I answer, it is good to accustom our tongue to godly and biblical forms of speech. It's a reminder to our heart and to others. The unbeliever is always noteworthy by their curses and rotten speech. Speaking this way is greatly useful to stir up humility and reverence in ourselves and others. It's always good, Manton concludes, to confess the certainty of God's providence and the uncertainty of our own lives. We see the apostles modeling this. In Acts 18, when Paul left Ephesus, he said to the Jews, I will return to you again, God willing. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. He tells them again in 1 Corinthians 16, I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. It's the Christian's honor. It's his duty to point everything to the sovereign will of God. This is simply doing what the writer of Proverbs told us in Proverbs 3, in all your ways acknowledge him. When we say Deo Valente, God willing, we're making a statement of faith. We're confessing that God is sovereign and he will accomplish all his holy will and he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. James goes on and says to his readers, instead, you ought to say, ought is a morality and ethics word. He's telling us what is our duty. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that, but now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So let me tell you what we ought to be doing with this. The word that ought to be on our lips whenever we make a plan, whether it's to go up to AI to battle or whether it's our plan to go to work tomorrow. The Bible intends for us to take every word and every thought captive. The reason why the world has such a problem with the sovereignty of God is because they never hear us talking about it. It's a foreign idea to the world, but it ought to be on our lips all the time. We ought to be able to say casually, Deo Valente, 
because it's so deeply embedded in our thinking. We ought to say, yes, I'll meet with you Thursday for lunch if the Lord wills. The reason why this is such a foreign thought and people say, you believe in a sovereign God who orders and controls all things? I've, I've never heard that. They should. They should hear it from your lips and mine each day. All of our plans should be underwritten with this huge red underline, if the Lord wills. And you don't see that when the spies come back to Joshua. They don't say, we can go up and try if the Lord's will. They, they think as man-centered men. They're relying on the arm of the flesh. And then comes a breathtaking omission. They don't even take the ark of God into battle. They're thinking, we don't need the presence of God. We can whip these people with the arm of the flesh. Don't need the presence of God? Remember what happened the last time they did that and didn't take the ark of God with them? Look back at Numbers 14, and I want you to see they, their memory shouldn't be that faulty. Look back to what happened the last time they didn't take the ark with them. Numbers 14, pick up the narrative at verse 41. Numbers 14, verse 41. Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? This will not succeed. Do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword because you've turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they pre presumed to go up to the mountaintop. And so look at the narrative in verse 44 and 45. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant nor the Lord Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormel. Do you see what happened that time? They're hasty to charge into God's, to battle without God's blessing or his presence. In both battles, whether it's Numbers 14 or Joshua 7, the ark, the symbol of God's presence, wasn't with them. And in both battles, they were routed. So what did this proud, godless foray into Ai reap? Let me point out three things that became a reality because of their presumption. First, it produces this fruit. Look at Joshua 7, verse 4. It produces flight, a radical retreat. We read, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. This is one of the saddest days in all of the history of Israel, when the mighty million-man army of Israel sends 3,000, a token force, and they have to retreat and run away with their back turned to Canaanites. The second thing they reap is they reap the death of three dozen fighting men. That night in the camp, there were 36 widows, 36 families left without a dad because of the presumption and practical atheism of these folks. And third, perhaps the greatest thing they reaped, they reaped discouragement. Look at verse 5. We read, the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shepherim, and they struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the people's hearts melted and became like water. This is what was just said in Joshua chapter 5 verse 1 about the Canaanites, that it was their hearts that had melted and become like water. This is the way God always deals with those who ignore him. 
he lets them know discouragement. What had been the lot of their Canaanite enemies, namely discouragement and fear, now becomes their lot because of their presumption. How do we apply this at Woodruff Road? Let me make one very pointed application. If you're thinking, Carl, we're, we're so much better than these people. We would never do this. We would never presume. My friends, you and I are just like them. This generation, and I'm not overstating the case here. I've thought very carefully about how to say this. This is very measured. This generation was the best far and away which Israel ever had. They were the best. Christ himself was their captain, according to Joshua 5. These were not people who were like their parents. These were believers. These were people who were quick to obey. These were people who loved the word, as we'll see very quickly. These were people who were teachable. They were confident in God's power. But look at the discouragement and defeat they undergo. All this to say, and let me warn us, that we must beware of pride and presumption, laziness and self-sufficiency, especially after God blesses, because that's the moment when we're prone to a fall. Do you remember what John said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3? He said, you become rich and wealthy and you have need of nothing. And he goes on to say, you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. God help us if we are so proud. We don't think that we need to continually be before the face of God, crying out for his wisdom, for his direction, for his strength, because the fundamental law of the Christian life is this. Pride always goes before a fall. And what we see stated here in Joshua 7, in the first five verses, is a subtle arrogance. These people say, we don't need the presence of God. We don't need the ark of God. We don't need to consult with the priest. We can handle this one on our own. My friends, have you not learned yet that you and I can't handle anything on our own? Don't say, I have this life-dominating sin. It may be lust or greed or hatred or fear or worry or covetousness. Lord, I need you to help me to mortify that one. But the little ones, I can take care of. I don't need your word or your spirit. My friends, you and I can't conquer the smallest sin. You and I desperately need the grace, the strength, the power of the living God. And so let me plead with you, even when we go to prayer now, to humble yourself. Reminding yourself that you have no wisdom, righteousness, strength on your own. And you have desperate need of God in Christ to supply every need by his grace. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, we plead with you now to humble us. Drive us lower in our esteem and to place you higher. We pray that as we prepare to go out into a world that doesn't know you, that we would carefully place the armor, the armor that you've designed for us, the armor of God on, that we would self-consciously walk in your strength, that we would say very humbly and carefully and repeatedly in our speech, if the Lord wills. Lord, humble us so that we do not stand before men as self-sufficient, as independent, but that all men see us and know us as tightly clinging to you,
living only by your word and by your strength. And Lord, we pray collectively as a congregation that you would humble us, that you would keep us ever lowly, keep us from arrogance, spiritual independence, and we would cling to you as our only life and hope. We pray this in the name of our only Redeemer, the Lord Jesus.